I feel so alone. Five days ago, my brother Charles died. I didn't even get to go to his funeral. Word didn't get to me in time. And last evening at our preaching service, the choir was singing one of Charles' hymns. One of the lines in the hymn was, And I am left alone. I sang with the congregation up until that point, but I couldn't sing any further. I broke down and wept for the only time in my life that I wept openly in a church service. And I stumbled over to my chair and crumbled in the seat. It was such a loss. Charles and I were so close. I never made a decision without asking Charles his opinion. We spent all of our lives growing up and sharing together. There were 19 of us children, but Charles and I were the closest in age, and we were just inseparable. And now, I'm 84 years old, and I feel so alone. My mother and my father have died. George Whitfield, my dear friend, who spent so much of his life with me in the Methodist movement, died. Most of those with whom I began life in the Holy Club have died, and I seem to be the only one. Charles' death was more than I could bear. Charles and I grew up in Epworth. My father, Samuel, was the rector there at Epworth. He was a man who was genuine in heart, but had a most difficult time providing for his family, spent much of his life in debtor's prison. He did the best that he could, but my mother was the power in the family. People said that she was the most beautiful woman in all of England, and of course I thought so, being her son. She disciplined us. In fact, she told us when we were growing up, if we had to cry, we must cry softly. We were disciplined in manners. She believed in education above everything else. She thought that without education, there just was no place in the world. And so at the age of six, as each of us reached the age of six, she began teaching us. The first day we learned the entire alphabet. And then the next day we started reading the book of Genesis. Five hours every day, each one of us spent learning at home. She read all the classics. She gave us an appreciation of the classics. When I reached the age of 10, my mother felt that she had done as much for me as she could. 
that I needed formal education, so I was into Charterhouse School. I had to go on scholarship because my family couldn't afford to send me there, but my father was so revered that it was no difficulty in getting that scholarship. I was the runt of the school, smaller than anybody. The bigger boys would steal the meat off my plate. But I never complained. I learned those years at Charterhouse how to live with an adversity. I began a habit that I never let go. Every day I would get out and run a mile. It did so much for my physical well-being. I was seven years at Charterhouse School. They had no more to offer me. And so at the age of 17, I went to Oxford University. That had been my dream. My father had gone to Oxford. My grandfathers had been to Oxford. I felt at home at Oxford. I became a scholar immediately with my love for learning. Wasn't all work, though. I played a lot while I was at Oxford. I loved to play tennis. Spent too much time playing tennis. I had a dear friend whose father was a rector in the Anglican Church who invited me to his home for an extended holiday. He had a sister, Sally Kirkman. How I fell in love with Sally. We were young, not old enough to make serious plans, but we feasted off the joy of being together. And she introduced me to a book by Thomas Kempis, The Imitation of Christ. I read the book. My life would never be the same again. I went back to Oxford. I wrote my mother a letter and I said to her, Today, leisure and I have parted company. I knew that I could not be one who enjoyed the frills of living, that life was much more serious than that. And I set out on a serious quest to be an imitator of the life of Christ. I decided at the age of 21 that I wanted to be a minister. I wrote my father and told him, Following in your steps, I'm going to be a preacher. He was thrilled. The next year, I was ordained deacon. Then my father grew ill. I had been a graduate of Oxford University for some time and was offered a professorship at Lincoln College. I taught Greek and elocution, and I presided over all the debates at the university. It was most stimulating that my father grew ill and said, I need you to help me. Now that I was ordained, I could be of help, and so I went back to Epworth, and for two years, I helped my father in his parish work. And then 
I got a communication from Oxford that said that they could no longer grant me a leave of absence that if I wasn't able to return to my teaching that they would have to replace me. So I left my father in his parish and went back to Oxford. And when I returned to Oxford, I discovered that my brother Charles, who was now a student at Oxford, well, along with some friends, had organized a club. He was on the same quest that I was, and so every day he and the others got together and they studied the scripture and debated it. They prayed. Other students made fun of them, called them Bible moths, called them Methodists because they were so methodical in everything they did. But we took the name Holy Club, and on my return, they made me the leader because of my maturity and my greater degree of learning. It was fulfilling, but it didn't allow me to have the peace that I was seeking. So we went beyond that. We would go down to the prisons and visit with the prisoners. Many times we rode with prisoners to their execution and prayed with them held their hands. We went to the almshouses and took food and clothing. I learned how to live on 28 pounds a year, and I still do. And everything beyond that I give to the poor, trying to make a difference. I thought, God will really bless me for this because I'm spending all this time in study and I'm going out and I'm feeding the hungry and I'm visiting the poor and I'm visiting those in prison. Everything that Jesus said to do and I was doing. But my life was empty. I just wasn't getting what I needed through works. And then my father died. I was 32 at the time that he died. My family wanted me to come back and take his place in the parish. And so I faced the crossroads. What would I do with my life? I could remain at Oxford for the rest of my life in an academic community that I dearly loved, but left me hungry, spiritually. I could go and take over my father's parish, but how could I share with the people in the parish what I didn't have myself? And perchance, just perchance, God had something else that he wanted me to do. And while I was trying to make a decision as to which course to follow, Charles came to me with word that General Oglethorpe was returning to Georgia and a colony that he had established in the colonies. It was peopled mainly by prisoners who had been let out of prison, mostly from debtors' prison, and given an opportunity for freedom to go to the New World. And they needed a chaplain. Would I come? And then I saw a glimmer of hope. I had met an American Indian, and I thought, they know nothing of Christ. If I could become a missionary 
to the American Indians, surely God would reward me there with His blessing. And I could find what I've never been able to find otherwise. Charles was going as secretary to Governor Oglethorpe, and so I agreed to go. I broke the news to my mother, knowing that I may never see her again, and she rejoiced in my going. She said, if I had a dozen sons, nothing would give me greater pleasure than to see them do what you're doing. And so with mixed feelings, I left Oxford, my home, my country, and set sail for the colonies. It took us eight weeks to get here. We'd been on the sea for four weeks. A storm struck. As I read about Jonah and the storm that was about to capsize their boat, it was nothing compared with what we were going through. The boat was being tossed about on the waves. I became so fearful, so frightened. I'm going to die and I'm not ready to die. What will be my fate if I die? And I prayed out of despair and fear. And I caught a glimpse of a little group of people huddled together in the corner of the ship, singing. How could anybody sing in a storm like this? And then there were prayers, but not urgent, fearful prayers. They were serene prayers. And when the storm abated, I approached them and I said, why weren't you afraid? And they said, why should we be afraid? If we die, our Lord's waiting to receive us. And I thought, to have such a faith as that. I asked who they were. They were Moravians on their way to the colonies as Moravian missionaries. We docked at Savannah. I was appointed to the church at Savannah. Charles and General Oglethorpe went down to Frederica on St. Simon's Island. I ventured out from the church into the wilderness where the Indians could be found. And they drove me out of the wilderness. They said, we don't want you here. We want to hear nothing you have to say. And then I discovered that the Spanish missionaries had come and passing themselves as Christian missionaries, they had robbed the natives. They had taken their gold. They had abused the women and they hated anything that had the sound of Christianity. And I felt defeat. That's why I had come. Then I met Sophie. I was 32. She was 18. Sophie Hopke. She loved me so deeply and I her. And she wanted to get married. I'd never made a major decision with it, consulting with Charles. But by now, Charles had gone back to London because he had become disillusioned too with the prospects of the colonies. And I wanted time, and she wouldn't give me time. Her uncle was a magistrate, and he insisted that we get married. And even General Oglethorpe, fearing that I would go back to London as well, thought if I married Sophie, then I would stay in the colonies. 
I wanted to do the right thing. So, I did what they did in biblical times. I cast lots. <laughs> and the word came negative. And so I told her no, that I wouldn't marry her. She became so incensed that she married someone else immediately. And I was so hurt. Given time, we could have developed a relationship, but not now. So when she came to communion on the following Sunday, I refused to give her communion. <laughs> this angered her husband. <laughs> this angered her uncle. And he took out a warrant for my arrest. <laughs> and I was facing court charges. I remembered the sand fleas, how they pested me all night, how miserable it was living in these colonies. The Indians had rejected me, and now I was in trouble with my parishioners. In utter defeat, total failure, I slipped out under cover of darkness on Christmas Eve of 1735 and went home. I determined I would never preach again. My first Sunday at Savannah, there was a Moravian missionary who came to church. Spangenberg was his name. And I approached him after the service and told him about my experience coming over with a group of Moravians. And I said, what is the secret that you have? And he said, it's no secret, it's a faith. Do you not have faith in Christ? And I answered him, I believe that he is the Savior of the world. He caught my answer. And he asked me a second question. Do you know that he has saved you from your sins? In honesty, I answered, I hope so. And then he said, Do you know? And caught in embarrassment, I lied. I said, yes. But I didn't. I had no assurance at all that Christ had saved me from my sins. And remembering Spangenberg and his influence and the influence of the Moravians, on my return to London, I sought out Peter Bowler. Peter Bowler was a leading Moravian scholar who himself was on his way to the colonies. And I told him of my experiences and that I was going to quit preaching altogether. And he said, don't quit preaching. Preach faith as though you had faith. And in time, you'll be preaching faith because you have faith. That wasn't enough for me. Charles was facing the same thing. We were both wanting that assurance. We'd done everything we knew. We wanted assurance. Charles came down with pleurisy, and he took up residence with a brazier in London, a very poor man who opened his home to him. And one evening as they were reading from Galatians, 
Charles suddenly said, I know. I know he has forgiven my sins. It was on which Sunday? He couldn't wait to tell me. And I came over and he told me that he had found what he had been looking for. Oh, my, the utter despair I felt. Now I was all alone in my search. Charles had found it. Three days later, on May 24th, 1738, I'll never forget that day. I woke early in the morning and was having my devotions, and the scripture for the day was, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I thought, oh, if only that were true. That afternoon, I went to St. Paul's Cathedral. A magnificent choir sang that afternoon, and some of the words they sang were, Out of the depths have I called unto thee, O Lord. And I thought, my, they are singing my feelings there. I left with mixed feelings, exhilarated over the beautiful music, but in a depth of despair because I was still calling out of the depths. That evening, someone invited me to go to a little Moravian chapel on Aldersgate Street. I didn't want to go. Refused at first, but finally agreed to go. It was about quarter till nine. The reader was reading from Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And suddenly, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I knew that Christ had died for my sins. That He had saved me from the laws of sin and death. I interrupted the speaker. I leaped to my feet and I rushed out of the chapel. I went as fast as I could to Charles' lodgings and I rushed into the room and I said, Charles, I found it. I found it. I have the assurance. He had written a hymn about his experience. Where shall my wandering soul begin? And we clasped one another in our arms and we sang heartily together. Where shall my wandering soul begin? couldn't wait to tell the good news to all the churches of England. Every priest had been assigned a parish and it was his authority as to who would preach in his church. I was a professor at Oxford. I had no pulpit from which to preach. So I begged and found opportunities to preach in the various churches. But the minute that I got enthusiastic about what I had experienced, I was told that I never could come back to that church again. There was no place for my enthusiasm there. You see, my beloved Anglican church was form only, little substance. Had no concern for the poor outside the church. Leaned altogether upon the sacraments for salvation. I wanted to tell them there's a personal experience and you've got to have it. George Whitfield and everybody says he's the most eloquent preacher of the century, and I, I know he is. Held everybody spellbound. 
he too was refused permission to preach. And so he went out in the fields and preached. And they came by the thousands to hear him. And he said to me, John, you've got to come out here and preach where the people are. And I said, there's no way. I went to my father's parish at Epworth and asked if I could preach. And the priest said, no. Well, can I at least read the scriptures? And he said, no. And so later that day, I went out and stood on my father's tomb. And I preached. And the people came. And I was surprised at the joy that I felt. And so I went out into the fields. I went to the coal mines and I preached to the coal miners. I had one preacher who tried to preach with an Oxford dialect and I told him, you'll never talk to miners that way. You've got to talk minor language. I learned to quit talking in scholarly tones. I talked about the people's needs and where they were and they came with the thousands. I realized that we were going to have to do something to keep them together and bond them into a fellowship. And so we formed the Methodist Societies based upon the Holy Club back at Oxford. After one year, I built a church at Bristol, New Room, to meet. The next year, I bought an old foundry in London where we could meet there. And we grew by the thousands. I couldn't do it, Charles. George Whitfield had come to America and he had made a big splash over in the colonies. They loved his eloquence. He didn't have the problems that I brought with me when I came. Benjamin Franklin became his dearest friend and built a tabernacle for him in Philadelphia for him to preach. He died while in America. But he was the one who told me to get out and preach in the fields and I found that that was my pulpit. A cathedral in the open air. Then Methodists who came to the colonies wanted to have societies here. Philip Embury was the first to come. He was one of my preachers. Robert Strawbridge came later. Philip stayed in New York and founded St. John's Church. Robert Strawbridge built a church in Maryland. And I began to see that that was part of my parish too. And so I began to send my lay preachers over to America. Now, they were laymen. They weren't ordained. They couldn't administer the sacraments. All they could do was preach. And I didn't want them to preach in the beginning. I said, you have to be ordained to preach. And I had gone to Ireland and on my return learned that one of my lay preachers had preached in my absence. And I became quite incensed. My mother said, John... Have you heard him preach? And I said, no. And she said, listen to him preach before you decide. And so I listened. When he finished, I said, only one who is filled with God's Spirit could preach like that. God has shown me what I was unwilling to see, that the lay person could preach just as well as the ordained. And so I signed a lay preacher on all of our societies and how we grew. In 1769, after having sent about five lay preachers to America, I sent one of my favorites. I said at conference that year 
We need to send someone over to the colonies. Is there anyone here who's willing to go? And here this fellow stood to his feet and declared, I'll go. And it was Francis Asbury. I went down to see him off as they sailed for America. And my last words to them was, give them Christ. And they came. The societies grew. And then the war broke out. The colonies fought for their independence. All these English clergymen ran home. Only Francis Asbury remained. Everyone other came back because they were in sympathy with the crown. Francis Asbury saw the role of his mission for Christ far above any national loyalties. And so he stayed. And when the war was over, he began the movement again. And by then, the Anglican Church had pretty well closed down because they were an English institution. Their professed loyalty was to the crown and there was nowhere for them to go to take the sacraments because most of the Methodists were Anglicans. I said, we've got to provide them the sacraments. I went to the Bishop of London and pled with him. Will you ordain my ministers so that they can administer the sacraments? And he said, no. I'd read a book in which the author on the primitive church had said that the bishops in the early church were the same as the elders, that they were not a third ordination as they had become. And when ordination took place then, it was just by one of the elders of the church. And I was an elder. Why couldn't I ordain? So I went to the scriptures and I studied the scriptures and I came to that conviction that there was no difference in the primitive church between the bishops and the elders. So I called Thomas Koch, who was ordained Anglican, like myself, and I consecrated him as superintendent. The same duties as bishop, but not the title. And sent him to America to ordain Francis Asbury, and then the two of them in turn would ordain others. And so he came to America. And on the following Christmas Eve in 1784, the Methodist societies gathered for their conference. Francis Asbury was ordained deacon on Christmas Eve, ordained elder on Christmas Day, and consecrated Bishop the Third. And with that, the Methodist Society said, we have our ordained ministers. We don't want to be tied to England from whom we have won our independence. And so on that fateful evening of December 24, 1784, they organized the Methodist Episcopal Church broke my heart, but I knew that there was no other way. It may happen here in England. I'm getting old. There's no one to take my place. But for now, I'll look upon the whole world as my parish.
John Wesley died four years later. The following year, the Methodist Church was born in England.